y'all are quiet this morning. Are you uh, saving up energy for tonight? Is that what it is? You guys are expecting to stay up till midnight? I'm not. I don't know about you, but uh, I plan to be asleep long before midnight. But take your Bible, turn with me to Psalm 51. We're going to be there this morning. I, I want to talk about this, the idea of being cleansed. Us observing the Lord's Supper today, sort of want to highlight uh, the doctrine of where that is stemming from. As we get started, I want to tell you a story, a story about a young girl named Liz many, many years ago over in the UK. Liz was suffering from a very rare and a serious disease. It was kind of disease, a blood disease, that if she didn't get a blood transfusion, she was not going to make it. Her chance of recovery was basically uh, at zero percent without this transfusion. And so her little brother had gone through this same disease. He had the same situation, and somehow, miraculously, he had overcome the disease, and he carried the antibodies to ward off that disease. And so she needed a transfusion from him for her to recover and to beat this disease. And so the doctors came to this young young boy and explained to him the situation and asked if he would be willing to give his blood to his sister so that she could survive. And he heard the news. He hesitated for just a moment before taking a deep breath and saying, yes, I'll, I'll do it if it will save her. So they rushed the two of them off into a room and began the process of doing the transfusion. And as this transfusion progressed, he lay there in the bed next to his sister and smiled as everyone in the room did because they could see the color beginning to return to Liz's face. As the blood was flowing from him, him into her, her face was becoming more flushed, becoming more healthy, and his face was growing pale and his smile was fading. And so he looked up at the doctor and asked with a trembling voice, will I start to die right away? You see, the little boy didn't fully understand what was taking place when he heard the question, are you willing to give your blood to your sister so that she could live he saw it as the opportunity to give his life for hers. As we think about what we've observed this morning in the Lord's Supper and the fact that Jesus' blood was shed for us, I, will, I hope you understand that God loves you. That God loves you so much that he willingly laid down his life. You see, the amazing and the wonderful message of the Bible is that God came to this earth in the person of God the Son. His name is Jesus Christ, and he died in our place. He became our substitute. Words, images, metaphors, pictures, illustrations, even like the story that I just shared about Liz and her brother, all of those help us understand in some limited way about the sacrifice of Jesus, but they can never fully portray and exemplify and tell the story of God's indescribable love because he's an indescribable God, and yet they give us a glimpse of it. This morning, we want to see in the Bible that Jesus died for our sins and he died in our place rather than us dying to bear our sin. I love what Jesus said in Mark 10, verse 45. He said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
And so this morning, as we have focused our attention on the Lord's Supper, this ordinance of the Christian faith, I want to take our time over the next few minutes to uh, help us better understand what the Lord's Supper is and, and looking at it for what it is, and that is the doctrine of salvation. How can we be made right with God? And so this morning, in case you have misunderstood the Lord's Supper, you did not become right with God because you ate a piece of matzah bread and drank a little cup of fake wine. Right? That's really what it is. It's fake wine. It's not wine. It's juice. There's no fermentation there. But I don't know why we do it that way, but that's the way we do it in the Southern Baptist Church. But we're doing that to symbolize salvation. But none of us became Christians this morning because we partook of an ordinance. But it speaks to the greater theological implications of the gospel in our lives. And so the Bible tells us that before Jesus was born, going back to the message of Christmas, that the angel Gabriel came and visited both Mary and Joseph and declared that the baby that she would carry was not going to be an ordinary baby that he was going to be extraordinary, that he was going to be supernatural, that he would literally be the Son of God who would save his people from their sins, right? We declared that last Sunday. Jesus, however, did not come to simply proclaim sinners forgiven. Have you thought about that before? That when angel Gabriel came and made this declaration to Mary and Joseph and the heavenly hosts erupted in the heavens and declared that there's a Messiah now in Bethlehem to those shepherds and that all of that thing that they were proclaiming centered around Jesus. When Jesus came, he didn't just make a declaration and say, everyone's okay. It would have been very simple if he did that. But that's not the way God operates because that would have not done justice to the awful sin of humanity that we have egregiously rebelled against an infinite and a holy God. And so Jesus came not to simply proclaim sin is forgiven. He came to receive the just judgment in himself, in his body, that we rightly deserved as the offenders of God. And he did all of this so that we might be forgiven. You see, Jesus came to shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins because the writer of Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so the author of Hebrews is telling us in that letter all of the things that we see in the Old Testament through the Levitical law and the multiple sacrifices that would have been offered routinely, that only foreshadowed what Jesus ultimately would do. Millions upon millions of bulls, goats, and birds were sacrificed on behalf of sinners, but it was never enough. But Jesus came, and he shed his perfect blood, and it was enough. And so what happened there on the cross is Jesus hung from it for our sins. What happened there was he became sin for us. So the sinless one, he who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So as Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's shedding his blood for us, what is happening there behind the scenes is God the Father is exhausting every ounce of wrath that he rightly has against us who have sinned against him. Jesus is absorbing that and paying the penalty. 
And so as Jesus hangs on the cross and says to tell us that it is finished, he is declaring it is finished. That everything that I have come to do has been accomplished. I came to be the substitute. I came to give my life as a ransom. I came to give my life as a sacrifice. I have paid it all in full. Every bit of God's wrath has been exhausted so that you who faith into me can be truly forgiven. Not because you're good, not because you're righteous, not because you've earned it or deserve it, but because you have faith into me and I have done what you could not do yourself. Paul tells us that Jesus is that second Adam who actually fulfilled the law, who did everything righteous, unlike the first Adam who failed from the very beginning. So there on the cross, God exhausts his wrath upon God the Son. God's just judgment is poured out. It's unleashed on Jesus so that the Lamb of God, the blood that he shed, became the atoning sacrifice that satisfied the justice of God the Father. So now, because of Christ, the words of Isaiah can become a reality for us where it says in Isaiah 1 verse 18, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be made like wool. What does that mean? It means you've been transformed. Your sins are red, now they're white. You, you've been guilty before God, now you're forgiven and acquitted of all sin. It's as if you've never sinned against God. It's as if you have never rebelled against him. God sees your sin no more. God holds your sin against you no more. Why? Because of Jesus and the sacrifice that he has made for you on the cross. So what did he accomplish? Atonement. Jesus paid the penalty for your sin so that you could be forgiven of all sin. And the Bible tells us that we have all sinned, right? Some of us were in that chapter this morning in small groups in Romans chapter 3 where it tells us that no one is good, no, not one. And then it goes down to verse 23 and it says all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all need the atonement of Jesus Christ. We all need the blood of Jesus that was shed upon the cross. See, our sin is great. Our sin is devastating. Our sin is something that separates us from God. But Jesus makes a way for us to come back to the Father. He did all of this by sacrificing himself on the cross by shedding his blood, by dying in our place. So Jesus becomes our sus substitute in order for us to be free from the penalty of sin. Though our sins are great, what? God's grace is greater. We just sang a song about that. Jesus, there on the cross, stands in our lawful place. And so in light of all of that, in light of that good news, what should be our response? We're going to be in Psalm 51 this morning. Let me just kind of set the context for what's going on here. In Psalm 51, what we have is King David's words after receiving forgiveness, after being confronted with his sin. What's, what's taking place, you probably know this, is King David, the Bible tells us in, in uh, Samuel that in the days when the king should have been going out to battle, David stays behind and he's in the city of Jerusalem and, and for whatever reason, he longs for a woman that he sees bathing on the top of her house. He sends for her. He lays with her. A child is conceived and so he's trying to hide his sin of adultery and he tries to hide it ultimately with murder. 
So David, who is the king, has one of his great mighty men of his warriors, one of his generals, the wife of this woman named Bathsheba, come into town. He talks, and because he's too righteous of a man to go home, he ultimately calls the troops back so that he's cut down in battle. And so not only is David an adulterer, David is now a murderer. About a year goes goes by after this event, For whatever reason, what we seem to understand from the Bible's storyline here is that David just kind of went back as normal. i got to believe that this bothered him a little bit, but he tried to grip it or uh, white-knuckle it uh, through that whole year, tried to forget it, tried to dismiss it, tried to not think about it, definitely had it covered up. And yet, while he's trying to forget it, God never forgot the sin. And so a year or so into this cover up God sends his prophet a man by the name of Nathan who comes and tells a story about a poor man who has his lambs stolen by a rich man and in righteous indignation David rises up and says this man's going to pay fourfold for what he's stolen from the poor man Nathan looks the king square in the eyes and says you are the man David's taken back not mad at the prophet like we would expect not angry, not self-righteous, but he, in that moment, God's grace pierces his heart, and he realizes, I've sinned against God. I am the offender. I am the great sinful person here. I am the one under the judgment of God. I am the one who needs forgiveness. So here we see David's sin was incredibly great, incredibly egregious, and yet God's grace is even greater than that. David's sin and his refusal to confess proved that he stopped loving God. But what do we see in this? God never stopped loving David. David probably stopped pursuing God. I got to believe that he wasn't reading his Bible. I got to believe he wasn't worshiping like he should have been. I got to believe he's out of fellowship with the Lord because we all know that when we're walking in sin, we are not walking in step with God. That's why I use the phrase, you're walking at a guilty distance. That's where David was. He is not pursuing the Lord, but the Lord was pursuing him. God sends the man to him, the prophet, who speaks the word of God to him, And David is overwhelmed by it. His response to this grace and the mercy of God is how we should respond. And so as we walk through the first 10 verses of Psalm 51 here in just a couple minutes or over a couple minutes, I want us to see Jesus on the cross. Because what David is responding to here in the mercy and the grace of God is a foreshadowing or it's it's ultimately fulfilled in what Jesus would do for us on the cross as he became our substitute, took the wrath of God in our place and experience the Father's exhaustion of judgment against it. So what should our response be in light of God's mercy and grace so that we experience the cleansing of God? Here's four things. First of all, we must turn to God. We must turn to God. In verse 1, when David is confronted with the greatness of his sin, what does he do? It says, have mercy on me, O God. See, David here immediately turns to God and he cries out for mercy. David didn't turn to religion. David didn't turn to a person. He didn't turn to the prophet Nathan and say, Nathan, you pray for me. Or Nathan, you go before the Lord for me. He doesn't do that. He doesn't go to his mama. He doesn't go to his best friend. He he doesn't do anything other than to cry out for the mercy of God. He didn't try to try harder and to be a better person. 
or to change his disciplines or to change his habits or, or, or to get some sort of accountability in his life. Now, all of those things are great, but the very first thing that David does is he turns to God. He cries out for mercy. I tend to think that he had been trying really hard all of that year to be a better person, right? That's what we do, isn't it? When, when God convicts us of sin and, and our immediate response is not faith and repentance, what we try to do is mm, white-knuckle it, lean in a little harder, and try, right? I think that's what David was trying to do, trying to forget, trying to move on, and yet God was never going to move away from his sin. So he sends Nathan to him to confront during that time, I believe the king was doing all of he could, and yet he could never get past his own sin. And so the problem was he could not make up for it because God had never forgotten it. So when God confronted David here through the prophet, he was broken, and he turns to God. And this ought to be our very first response to the Lord as we turn to him. Secondly, we must confess our sin. David here confesses his iniquity, he confesses his transgressions, he confesses his sin. Transgression speaks of a high-handed revolt against God's law. Iniquity describes the perverseness of his nature, and sin portrays his missing of the mark, the falling short of God's standard of holiness. So he rightly understood that he was born into sin, he says here in verse 5. You see, he sinned, why? Because he's a sinner. Did you ever, have you ever understood and realized that the reason you do the things you're not supposed to do is because that's your nature? Right? I've told you before, we could go this morning, right now, we could all get up, walk down to the preschool area, and just stand there and take turns walking by the door in front of the toddler room and observe how you do not have to teach humans how to steal. You don't have to teach humans how to be mean to one another or push one another out of the way. That, that comes natural. Right? Where, where does it come from? It comes from our sinful nature. That's who we are. We sin because we're sinners. David sinned. David lusted because that is the nature of the human heart. So here he confesses this to the Lord. This prayer is in response to his specific sin. David is very specific in how he confesses his sin here. We ought to do the same. And so David here recognizes there is a deeper problem, not just a specific sin, but there's something behind that. Sin's never just an occasional act. It's something deeply ingrained within all of our human hearts, and we must confess that to the Lord. Thirdly, we must ask for cleansing. David here asks for the Lord to cleanse him. He cries out for mercy in verse 1. Verse 2, he asks to be washed. He asks for the Lord to blot out his transgressions, going back to verse 1. So in response to the sacrifice and the substitution of Jesus on our behalf, what is our response? We ask the Lord to cleanse us. We ask for him to take that sin away. And that's the promise of scripture, right? 1 John 1, 9, if we were faithful to confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all sin. What does that mean? It, it means it's forgiven. It's wiped away. The slate is clean. Today, if you were to commit a crime and the governor or the president were to pardon you, then there's no legal at all uh, history recording of you ever committing that crime. It has been blotted out. It has been wiped away. It has been cleansed. And that's what happens when Jesus changes our lives, when he forgives us of our sin. So in asking for God to cleanse him, David here is acknowledging that he was absolutely powerless to clean up the mess in his life. But that's what he tried to do, 
right? He's the king. He has infinite resources at his disposal. He sleeps with a woman that he's not married to. Excuse me. And then he's doing everything he can to cover it up. And yet he gets to the end of himself where we all have to get at some point, And he realizes, I cannot cover my sin. There's not enough lies that I can tell to cover up my sin. There's not, another, uh, en- there's not enough ways that I can come up with, with creative uh, attempts to, to get people confused about my sin or to forget about it or get them distracted, which is what we do when we sin. And said, we've got to come to the place where David came, where David got, and understand that I need the forgiveness and the cleansing of God. I need him clean me. I need him to change my life. And that brings us to a fourth thing. We must receive his healing. Look at verse 8. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. He's asking for healing here. David has become deaf to the voice of God deaf to the sounds of joy. This is where he is before Nathan comes and confronts him. You see, sin had cut him off from the joy of knowing the Lord. If you're walking at a guilty distance today, you can sympathize with this. You can understand this because as a Christian, before you walked into this situation or season that you're in, you knew the joy of the Lord. You knew the closeness of the Lord. You knew the the, 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 the comfort and the peace and all of the things that comes with a close walk with the Lord. And then all of a sudden, when you turn your back to him and you turn your face towards sin, now you no longer know joy. You no longer know peace. But as David turns to God and he confesses his sin and he asks for cleansing, what he's receiving here is a full healing from the effects of sin. Now, I will say that with any cut... What is left after that when it heals up? A scar, right? I was going to pull a pant leg up today. I can show you a really nice 8-inch, 10-inch scar on a knee. If I pulled another pant leg up, I could show you about an 8-inch scar on my ankle. We won't even go to all the scars that I got on my body from surgeries. And so all of these joints that I've had surgeries on over the years, they've been fixed. They've healed up. But there's a scar there that tells me a story, Right? You can go in your own life. You can think of the ways where you have strayed from the Lord and His grace and His mercy has brought you back. And, and so that scar that remains there, even though, Lord, even though the Lord's cleaned up things, the scar reminds you of His goodness and His grace and His mercy. It's a warning to never go back in that direction again. Sometimes there's also some collateral damage, right? I can pull up a pant leg here and show you a knee that looks really, really weird, especially from a certain angle, because there's all kinds of scar tissue under it. So it works fine. In fact, it's better than the other knee that's not surgically repaired. But you can tell there's something just not right about that knee. Why? It's because it's the collateral damage of the trauma that it went through. And so the Lord cleans us up. The Lord moves us in a certain direction. But there's always stains that are a little off. David ask for healing. David is receiving healing. In verse 10, he appeals to God that he would create within a clean heart. The word create there is the word bara in Hebrew. It's the word that's used in Genesis 1-1 where God is speaking from nothing all that there is. He's speaking creation into existence. In the Latin, we speak of this theologically as ex nihilo. It's God saying, come, exist, 
be formed when there's nothing there. We cannot do that as humans. We take things that are already created and we put them together and create something. But God creates for nothing. What's David asking here? He's saying, Father, there's nothing good in my heart. I'm wicked to the core. Left to myself, left in my sin, left to this nature of the flesh. There is nothing good in me. Paul would say it this way in Romans 3. There is no one righteous, no, not one. David is affirming that, right? But he's saying, create within me a clean heart. How does a clean heart happen in a life that is inherently sinful? Jesus is imputing his life there. He's imputing his righteousness there. And from that comes a righteous, clean, new heart. Does that make sense? So he heals him from the inside out. David here was not asking for the Lord to build upon what was found in his heart. Why? Because his heart was evil. He was asking for God to give him a brand new heart. David understood that his heart was wicked. He understood he did not need a tweaking or an overhaul. He needed a new heart. He needed to remove the old and put in the new. He needed a full healing, a complete transformation. And like David, all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Our sin is great, but thankfully God's grace is greater. And so how did David receive this full pardon for his sin and a complete healing from its effects? That's a great question. Because we want the same thing in our own lives, right? We're about to embark on a brand new year. You've only got a couple hours left in this year, and then we can actually leave here today and say, I'll see you next year, and we're not lying, right? New years are good because, I was thinking about this on the way to the church this morning. New years are opportunities for us to look at the past 12 months and say, it's been an okay year. There's some things that I wish would have went different. There's some things I wish I could change. And the new year gives us an opportunity to make those changes, right? So as we embark on that, we can think about, man, I want to be closer to the Lord. Or, man, I've been holding on to this sin. Or I'm not walking in fellowship like I want to. And I've not been doing that for this last year or this last decade or my whole life. But I have an opportunity today and tomorrow and going forward, right? I can do these things that we've looked at here. I can turn to God. I can ask for forgiveness. I can receive his healing by confessing my sin. All of this is through Jesus Christ who became our sacrifice and our substitute. I'm going to close with a, a story, a little bit of history. One of the preachers that I love to listen to weekly shared this uh, a number of years ago, and I've always found it fascinating. Here's the story. It takes place way back in the 1860s. In fact, an invasion took place in 1868 that really was on the scale of what we would look at and say, or, or see in history from the invasion of Normandy. It was on that scope. The invasion took place because back in 1864, a man by the name of Theodore III of Abyssinia, that is Ethiopia, took 53 hostages that were citizens of England that were a part of the British Empire. He took 30 adults and he took 23 children and he took them deep into the heart of Ethiopia and placed them in a fortress that was way up on the top of a 9,000 foot tall mountain. Queen Elizabeth did everything she could to get these hostages returned. 1864, 1865, 1866, she wrote letters and sent them to Theodore III. She sent emissaries. She sent diplomats. She sent military advisors who went and pleaded with this man to release the hostages. 
Now, the 53 people, we would think, here in this story, must have been very important people. They must have been dukes and, and, and people of, of nobility within the kingdom. They must have been great military leaders, great business leaders, but they were nothing other than common folks. They were not diplomat. They weren't soldiers. They weren't magistrates or wealthy merchants. They were just commoners. They were foreigners. They were farmers. They were missionaries and their family members. So the queen pleaded with this man for four years until she came to the place where she was fed up and said, enough of this, we will act. So she called up her troops that were stationed in Bombay. At that time, India was part of the British Empire. And so she called up the regiments from Bombay, 32,000 soldiers. Those soldiers boarded ships and trains and headed to the Horn of Africa. There they arrived with 44 Indian elephants to carry the number of cannons that were going to be used. They built an entire dock on the banks of the sea. They built a water filtration system. They built a railroad into the heart of Ethiopia. They built a telegraph system for communication, and they built buildings, supply depots, and amassed huge caches of weapons and food. In fact, they brought in over 50,000 tons of meat just to feed that massive army. So in 1868, the British took off into the heart of Ethiopia, and on Good Friday of that year, they attacked. The forces of Theodore III melted away. The British army captured the, forces, the fortress. They broke into the place where the hostages were held captive, and they set them free. And there they found the body of Theodore III with a pistol in his hand. He had taken his own life. He was no match for the forces of the British Empire. No match for the overwhelming military and armament of the queen. And so the interesting thing about this is the pistol that Theodore III took his life with was a pistol, a gift from Queen Victoria just a few years earlier. She had given him the pistol. He had rebelled against her and took his life with it. The British Army released those 53 commoners, having spent what we would have in today's currency billions of dollars. They expended massive amounts of resources just to rescue a handful of common people from the kingdom. What a price to pay for just ordinary people. But when you think about what God's done for us, is it not that much greater? Think about what Jesus has done for us. Who are we? To the Lord. Yeah, we're created in the image and likeness of God, and that gives us our value, but we rebelled against Him. Every one of us have sinned and fallen short. Every one of us are doing our own thing. No one is righteous. No, not one is what Paul says. And yet God went to the infinite degree to exhaust the resources of heaven to bring salvation to you. Isn't that the grace and the mercy of God? Aren't you grateful for that today? Again, Trevor tried to help you earlier with clapping and saying, I'm going to try to help you when you hear good, solid truth. It's okay to affirm it. Man, think about what God's done for you. He leveraged heaven so that you could live there forever. He leveraged heaven. Now, I was never in jeopardy. We never need to get to the point where we're thinking, well, I don't know if the, if the enemy was going to win that battle or not. No, he was always firmly in his grasp. But that's what he did. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And so if a 
a queen, as great as Queen Victoria was, but if an earthly queen would leverage the kingdom's resources for 53 common people, citizens of the British Empire, how much more greater is what Jesus has done for us when heaven was leveraged so that you could come into relationship with Jesus? I believe today that if you were the only person that would have ever sinned in this world, Jesus would have died on the cross for you. You're that much... You're that valuable and that important to him. And so this morning, as we begin a new year, just in a matter of hours, here's the question that you all need to ask yourself. If I'm not in relationship with Jesus Christ, what is holding me back? Right? What is it that's holding me back? Now, I'm speaking to a a room of people that probably most of us are followers of Jesus Christ, but not all of us are. And so, what is it that's holding you back? Well, I don't know what people will think. I I don't know what people would say about that. Who cares? The God of heaven cares enough to give his life for you. What's holding you back from that? What if those 53 people who got rescued from the fortress by Queen Victoria and her forces would have said, you know what, I'm okay here. I think I'm going to sit a while here on the top of this mountain. I know I'm in chains and shackles. I know I haven't been fed very well. I know I haven't seen my friends and family in years, but I'm going to stay here in my slavery and in my confinement. The queen would have been greatly offended by that. She leveraged the kingdom for them. What would Jesus say to you? He'll, I know what he'll say. He'll give you your choice because it's your choice to make. But he's given you an opportunity. For us as followers of Jesus Christ, as we embark into this new year, I don't know what your, life, your walk with Jesus has been like this year in 2023, but I know what he wants it to be in 2024, close and clean. Close and clean with him. So what do we need to do? Turn to God, confess our sin, receive his forgiveness and healing in our lives. So on this last Sunday of this year, Let's just take a couple minutes and respond in faith and repentance to that. Can we do that? Trevor's going to come. Him and Jenna are going to sing and lead us through a song. This is our opportunity to respond. And so would you pray with me? Let's stand to our feet, and then let's respond. Heavenly Father, as we have opened your word and looked in this very familiar psalm, this story that probably all of us in this room are acquainted with, we thank you for the great truth that it proclaims. A truth of forgiveness, a truth of restoration, a a truth of transformation. We thank you that that comes to us, all of us in this room, through Jesus Christ. It comes because of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So God, I pray this morning for that man, woman, teenager, child, who has yet to say yes to Jesus, yet to say, Lord, forgive me for my sin. I put my faith and trust in you. I ask that you become the Lord and the Savior of my life. I pray for that person that today would be the day of salvation for them. Father, I pray for all of us as believers, those who have come to that place in our life, but for whatever reason, maybe holding on to sin. God, may we look to Jesus. May we receive forgiveness for that. God, help us to walk close and clean with you in this new year. Our families need it, our friendships need it, our businesses need it, our community needs it. Lord, as we think about what our community needs most, they need Jesus, and the Jesus they see is the Jesus that's in us. And so help us to be that Jesus who's close and clean with the Lord. Father, this time is yours. Help us to respond.
as we start this new year. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus himself. Amen. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.